Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I'm joined today by senior TechCrunch reporter on the FinTech Beat. It's Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, before we tell folks what we're doing today, how are you? I'm doing good, Alex. I'm excited to be doing this with you. This is going to be so much fun. Oh, you're very, very kind. Today, we are taking a first of two looks back at 2023. It has been a big year, very, very busy, lots of major news events for us to crunch upon. And so we're going to go back and touch on some key themes from this year. I hope you're on vacation and you're sitting back and you're relaxing and you can take a little journey down memory lane with us, Marianne. So what's on the agenda? Well, we're going to talk about venture funding or a lack thereof. Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. And then we're going to dig a little bit into fintech and what happened there. It's ups and downs. And then we'll discuss the creator economy. Yes. And we'll even at the end touch a little bit on AI and what I'm calling the return of key person syndrome. And just in case you were saying to yourself, but what about AI? Why isn't this whole show just about AI? Well, we do have a second look back coming in, and that will involve both crypto with our own Jackie Melanick and also AI with Devin Coldway, also from TechCrunch. So we have more coming. This is more the Alex and Marianne talk through the biggest things that they recall from this year because we wanted to chew it over with you before we say goodbye to 2023, which, Marianne, I gotta say, much more busy than I expected it to be, given where we were, you know, this time last year. Yeah, I agree. It was more busy and it was just, I felt like it was a very turbulent year. So many ups and downs and so many, we had a couple of big stories that gave us whiplash besides OpenAI, right? We had the SVB collapse. So I felt like we were just constantly up and down, up and down and trying to keep up with everything. Yeah, absolutely. And so I want to start with venture capital data because it's so kind of core to what we talk about on the show. But there's two ways to to think about this. One is what happened this year on a quarter by quarter basis. And then the other way is how does that compare to the year before? So Marianne, I'm going to start saying numbers. And when you think I've said too many, just wave your hand and I'll shut up. Okay. 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 So in the first quarter of this year, and I'm pulling all data for this from KPMG's Venture Pulse documents because I like the way they lay this out. It's very simple to understand and parse. So according to KPMG, in the first quarter of this year, there was $57 billion of total invested venture capital, of which $31 billion went to the U.S. Sounds like a lot of money, but when you look at the year-ago results in Q1 2022, that was $145 billion around the world and $71 billion in the U.S. So that, I think kind of shows how much things changed. Yeah, like it was a dramatic slowdown at the start of the year. It was almost terrifying, frankly. It was almost one third of the global funding amount. I mean, that's dramatic. But another way, it's nearly a two thirds decline, if you want to think of it that way. (laughs) Exactly. Then there was some positive news because from $57 billion around the world in the first quarter of this year invested, it rose to $77.4 billion in the second quarter. And then Stuck right around there at 77.1 in Q3. Now, we don't have Q4 numbers yet. Of course, it's still December, but it does seem that venture capital managed to kind of regain its footing a bit as the year went along. And I'll just say, because 2022 was a downward slope in venture capital results in general, the comparables on a year-over-year basis got less egregious as time went on to the point to which Marianne, in Q3, that $77 billion invested this year compares kind of pretty much flat to the $87 billion invested in Q3 one year ago. Right. And in the U.S., the numbers weren't that far apart either. $36.7 billion raised in the third quarter compared to $43 billion 
in the third quarter of 2022. So definitely not as wide of a gap or difference. Yes. So we are narrowing in on what I think we can call the new normal, or as some people might say, a return to norms, which is kind of the same thing, though with a slightly different emphasis. So where does this leave us? Well, I went and pulled some more historical data because just comparing to 2022 is only so useful broadly for the three major regions that we track, starting off with Europe. The EU will see less capital raised this year than in both 2021 and 2022, but more than it saw in 2019 and 2020. And that's according to Deal Room. In the US, we'll see less capital raised this year than 2020, 21, and 22, but perhaps more in line with what we saw in 2018 and 2019. And then in Asia, things seem to be the most stark, if you will. Mm -hmm. I believe if I'm reading the KPMG data correctly on Asia Venture Capital, the area will see the least capital raised since around 2017 this year. So Europe taking the least kind of like implosion, the US is still the leading market, but it's going to take a bigger decline. And then Asia is really kind of falling down the, uh, the venture tree. I think this makes sense considering that the U.S. was the largest recipient of all the venture dollars during that boom time after the pandemic. So the higher you rise, the more you have to fall. <laughs> that, yes, correct. Yeah, and it probably was the most eloquent way to put it, but not shocked by that. Although saying that it's perhaps more in line with 2018 to 2019 is a little sobering. I don't know, Just it's just a stark reminder that when we're going through these phases where we're seeing these crazy high valuations and massive amounts of venture dollars being deployed, we have to keep in mind the whole time, like maintain humility, because we know this is our reminder for years to come. Yes. Usually what goes up must come down. Or what becomes the source of the most enthusiasm, and dare I say hype, often is the thing that cools off the fastest and leaves the most people holding the bag, if you will. Mm -hmm. In reverse, it's always very easy to see major platform shifts and see kind of the trends and how tech and the larger economy moves. In the moment, it's a little bit dicier. And I think everyone's so afraid of missing out on that next platform shift or key technology that it's pretty easy to pile into new things, hoping that they're going to be that step function change, even if they wind up being something that's a little bit more iterative, less profitable, and also just less long lasting than people thought. And no, I'm not just talking about crypto. That always goes up and down. But I think, for example, as we'll get to later on, the creator economy did have a moment in which people thought, hey, maybe this is the next big thing. And then it turned out that the growth rate was going to be much slower than people expected. And that has led in that example, Marianne, to a lot of displeasure, carnage, maybe. Right. Very good way to put it. There were other things that happened, though, throughout the course of the year besides funding dollars being deployed with regards to venture. And, and Dom covered this very closely, which her reporting was great, as always. California passed a law mandating VC firms to release investments, diversity information. And this was a big deal because we've long had a diversity problem in the world of venture and startups, with the majority of venture dollars going very much to a similar demographic. <laughs> I think that's a perfectly fine way to say that. <laughs> yeah, and not enough going to others. Um, so we've talked about this before over the course of the year. And the problem is it's hard because a lot of venture firms will say, oh, we, we want to invest in more diverse founders. We really want to. It's just hard to find them. We don't know where to find them. And they're not, they really haven't been held accountable. So with California passing this law, all of a sudden they're going to be in the spotlight. Exactly how they're doing will be revealed. Yes, and this was about as popular as um, pissing in the punch bowl. If you're curious about how it played in venture capital circles, no one was very happy about this who invests money because, you know, if you don't want to get measured, 
being told you have to get measured is not particularly popular. In general, I'm in favor of more venture capital data becoming public. We do get some of it on a returns basis from different uh, buckets of money, CalPERS, for example, or other kind of pension funds and so forth. But often venture capital results data is very occluded and very much hidden away. And the argument is, well, we don't have to report it. And my response to that is, yes, but that doesn't mean you can't. Mm -hmm. So if you won't share it, sometimes on a state-by-state basis, you'll be told to. And we'll see how that plays out. Elsewhere in the world of venture, the thing that's caught my eye as we move towards the end of this year, Marianne, is that the earlier stage startup you look at, the better the chances are that it's doing a good job on the fundraising side of things. I pulled some data recently with our our colleague Anna Heim, and essentially our view is that if you look at like seed data through Q3 of this year, because Q4 data hasn't quite come in yet, seed rounds are holding on their valuations the best. They're seeing less declines in total funding amounts. And then the later stage you get, the greater the discounts become and the greater the funding retractions become. My view is like, we talk a lot about startups in a very broad sense. And I think we should probably kind of cut that up. But early stage startups are doing kind of okay. And then scale-ups and super late stage startups are struggling the most. So in a sense, for early stage tech companies, it hasn't been that bad of a year. Well, this is not at all a surprise. And again, this is something that's been evidenced in my inbox or by my inbox. The number of pitches I get have been very predominantly early stage throughout the year. I would say the vast majority of funding round pitches I've gotten in 2023 were for early stage rounds, mostly seed, to be honest with you, not even Series A. I believe it. Yeah. Absolutely believe it. Mostly seed. So I'm not shocked by this at all. And then on the flip side of that, the later stage deals were few and far between. Again, not a surprise because because the startups that were raising in 2021, 2020, maybe even early 2022 are among that group that were part of a very large hype cycle, may or may not. They might still be trying to grow into their valuation. They probably have taken valuation haircuts. They might be still trying to raise. It's just not a surprise. Okay. So that said, there has been some interesting data from fintech that does kind of go against this. So As we kind of recap the year, clearly, if you have AI in your startup name, you're doing fine. But for everyone else, we are still trying to parse out exactly how the year has gone. And I think, Marianne, you have nailed our general vibe for like fintech startup capital raising this year. But as we've kind of come towards the end, it has seemingly found a couple of rays of light, including the number of unicorns that were born just last month. Yeah, I I was really excited about this, to be honest with you, because I feel like we've had a kind of a, a lot of negative headlines in the world of fintech this year. So our former colleague at Crunchbase, Janae Tier, she did this analysis, which she's so awesome at doing. And she discovered that in November of the new unicorns that were born, I think there were nine, Yep, three, which is one third, were fintech companies. Hey! And I was like, yay, okay, good news for fintech. I, I, I wasn't <laughs> expecting it. Three unicorns. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think that's fantastic. And I know we're going to talk about fintech here in a second. So I think I'll just actually scoot us into fintech because I want to touch on this. The fintech companies that we think a lot about had an often tough initial post-pandemic period. If you think about Stripe and its valuation cuts, for example, if you think about Klarna and its massive revaluation, we are seeing some strength return to those places. So when I think about Klarna's results, which is probably my single favorite fintech story from this year, Mm -hmm. the company had to essentially work on profitability, keep growth coming, and get its kind of like new shape into order. And it's done that. It's done quite well. 
And, you know, when we think about companies like Affirm that saw their valuation drop very sharply in the public markets, we've seen some reflation there. Mm -hmm. And even as we get into Q4, Coinbase and other trading companies are seeing their fortunes turn around as trading activity picks back up. Also, the sharper interest rate environment we've had this year has helped some fintech companies that sit on a lot of consumer cash or corporate cash generate quite a lot more money off of that. So even though fintech has been in the doghouse for years now, it does seem like there's a slight change in the wind as we approach the end of this year. So not to get too far into prediction land, Marianne, but is this positive momentum going to last into the new year? I don't know. I'm optimistic. I do think that what we've seen is a little bit of survival of the fittest take place here. And, you know, the businesses that were solid and had good models have proven to be resilient despite all the challenges. As you mentioned, like Klarna and Affirm had a rough start to the year. They've rebounded to a certain degree here as we are ready to close out the year. We've got three unicorns in November, unexpected, as you mentioned. So I feel like, you know, fintech, everything went crazy. And then everyone's like, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe there's all of this isn't as awesome as we expected, which I disagree with. I just think that just like in any hype category, there's so many startups that emerge and only a fraction of them are like really doing something (laughs) very significant, different or meaningful. And so that's what I feel like is playing out now. The ones that are really doing something different, unique. They're the ones that we're seeing still doing okay, growing, et cetera, and just the weeding out of the rest. Speaking of weeding out of the rest, I do want to talk about fintech M&A and companies getting taken off the playing board. But before we do that, a very short break. All right. So Marianne, when we started off this year, we were expecting quite a lot of fintech M&A because we expected a lot of smaller companies in the space. And, you know, there were a bunch of them to eventually kind of run low on cash and sell to a larger player. I know that fintech M&A started off pretty hot, but it did seem to slow down in my view. Is that correct? Yeah, the year started out nuts, right? I mean, in January, we had like a ton of deals. I think there was one week where there was like five. Wow. In just one week, BlackRock acquired a stake in the 401k provider human interest, deal acquired Catbase, Fidelity acquired, it looks like Shoebox, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, Vouch acquired Level, American Express bought or entered an agreement to acquire another company. So I, I thought, oh, and let me, let's not forget Marquetta bought Power Finance for $275 million cash. So I was thinking, oh my gosh, if this is how the year is starting out, 2023 is going to be nuts. All this M&A, all this M&A is going to be nuts. But then things quieted down like a lot for the next few months. And they picked back up over the summer, some. We had Robinhood acquire X1, credit card startup. Yeah. And then we had Visa buying Brazilian payments infrastructure company Pismo in a billion-dollar deal, which was a big deal. And then things got quiet again. And then more recently, we had a couple of other deals. Uh, Webull buying a Mexican stock trading app Flink, Yield Street buying Cadre. So they came in waves. The deals came in waves. I'm always curious about how we end up with deals kind of bunched together as we do. Apart from market timing, it's hard to say, but I don't think, for example, it's a wild coincidence that when we had three IPOs this summer, they were all within like, what, a week of one another? I think it was market conditions and then everyone had to make a call at the same time and made a similar idea and then out it comes. And I wonder if these kind of fintech ups and downs come with a similar starting point. But that's actually more deals than I remembered, though, as we I go through them. I, I forgot I, one, Alex. I'm sorry to interrupt no. you, but I, I'd be remiss not to include Ramp acquired an AI startup, oh. Cohere.io, over the summer. That's right. Damn. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a reasonable amount of interesting M&A this year. 
Can I do a little bit of, a, of an off-topic segue here really quick to something that I, that I want to bring up? Of course. Hey, Marianne, you know what deal didn't close this year? What? Adobe Figma. Hey, Marianne, oh, guess right. what deal won't close next year either? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Adobe Figma. Oh, I'm just guessing. That I, I forgot about it, to be honest with you. Yes. Well, I think everyone did except for the two companies. But if there's ever a deal that should trigger the, is this anti-competitive like gut reaction from the government? Surely it's this one. Uh, send your fan mail to equitypod.techers.com so I don't have to read it. All right. <laughs> Back to fintech. I covered a company in the fintech space later on in this year, kind of in the fintech infrastructure space, which I find quite interesting. I've still covered a couple of other companies in the the broader fintech infraspace, if you count InsureTech as fintech. So that would be AgentSync as well. But there were a couple of companies that I've talked to before who did raise extension rounds in fintech broadly as the year kind of ticked towards a close. And that felt... I'm not going to say bullish, more like almost like like neutral-ish positive to me. Mm-hmm. But it, mm-hmm. it does seem that we're not going into 2024 with fintech bleeding and limping as we did kind of coming into kind of late 2022. Yeah, I would agree. And, and you raise a good point about infrastructure. It definitely is a sector, a sector within the sector that remained resilient throughout the year where we saw a lot of interest and more dollars flowing for sure. All right. So we've done my favorite topic, which is venture capital flows. We've done your quote, quote, favorite topic, which is all things fintech. Let's talk about a thing that neither one of us writes about too much, but we both think really matters, which is the creator economy. And the first thing we want to bring up is the rise and fall of people trying to once again, take down Twitter. And I'm sure everyone who's been online in the last year recalls the Twitter purchase saga. Musk ended up buying it, took on a bunch of debt to do so. And then because it's a Musk-related project, it's been a little chaotic, but very fun to watch. Twitter is now called X, and a bunch of other companies tried to come and take its mantle, if you will. And Marianne, I think we can say that once again, everyone's attempt to replace Twitter has failed, and we're all talking about it over on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, this is really tough because... Twitter, or what is now X, has changed dramatically over the past year. I mean, it's not, to me, it's not nearly as fun as it used to be to get on X. My engagement, personally, I have seen decrease markedly, like in terms of the number of people viewing my posts, engaging with my posts. I mean, it's insane how much it's dropped. And I I guess it's due to the algorithms that were put in place. But yet, as much as many of us complain about how much X has changed, all the crap that's on there now, and they've decreased engagement, we're still there. We can't quit it. I haven't been able to quit X. I won't quit X. And I'll be honest, all these different sites that popped up, I think I, I've created profiles for a couple of them, but I never really got into engaging on them very much. I just didn't. I think for me, it was personally, I just don't have much time and I just kind of forgot about them. Well, I think what we're also seeing is people trying to carve off a slice of Twitter. For example, Mastodon and the broader Fediverse, which I think is a very cool idea, has taken over, I think, some of the people that are more interested in owning their own digital personas and have a bit more technical expertise. Blue Sky took off a big chunk of weird Twitter and is still doing okay over in its own corner. And then I'll say T2 tried to rebrand as Pebble and failed. I haven't used Spill, but it doesn't seem like these companies have made a lot of impact against Twitter itself. The big company is Threads because we definitely have meta in the mix, but Threads is not about news and Blue Sky isn't really about news. And so I think the reason why Twitter has maintained its central status in our life or Twix, I don't know, call it what you want. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> the, I love uh, that it, it's still where we go to see what's happening now. And until I think it loses that, I think Twitter will remain central to at least our lives. And if it remains central to our lives, we'll still be there and we'll help drive engagement to the platform. So I think I now understand what actually makes Twitter different. And it's a combination of product choices and also just the people who use it. Mm-hmm. And it's Teflon, baby. We just keep bouncing off. I mean, the thing is, we've been on there for so long, right? It's been over a decade for many of us. We've been on X. You know how they say sometimes, I mean, we're, just, we're familiar with it. We're comfortable there. And we have a fairly high number of followers. It's it's hard. As much as Elon has tried <laughs> to mess it up to the point that we don't want to be on there anymore, it hasn't worked. It is impressive to me how borked my ex experience is now and the fact that I still go. Right. For folks who don't know, I don't pay for Twitter, although I'm really close to, <laughs> to giving up and just paying for it. It's hard. It's hard to quit it. And also another thing about X, it's a great place for leads. I can't tell you how many story ideas I get just by reading X and different posts. High density of people we care about in the industry we follow talking about what's happening now. When I saw that Sam Altman had been fired from OpenAI back when he was, you know, in the woods for three, four days, I saw it on X and I immediately right. ran back to my desk, you know? Right. So I, I I know we're going to get to open AI in the second half of our look back show. So I, I shouldn't tread on that territory, but it's very hard to not talk about given that we are discussing this particular year. Okay. So back to the rest of the creator economy, not just X, not just Twitter. There's quite a lot going on. We saw the great Reddit API brouhaha this year, Marianne, which they changed up mm-hmm. the Reddit APIs and how they charge for them. It was another one of those moments in which it seemed Reddit might shatter into a thousand pieces and instead mostly stayed whole with some subreddits falling apart, but mostly that stayed the same. We don't talk about that anymore because it seems to have entirely passed. But before we move on, any comments on the the Reddit fiascos of 2023? Yeah, I mean, it was in the summer, right? It was just in June, which feels like so long ago um, when the site went down. There was a protest against its new API policy and everybody in an uproar and just furious and upset. And there was a new policy that was essentially going to put a lot of third-party apps out of business, right? Somehow, Reddit emerged from this still okay and not just okay, but said to be potentially going public for real next year. Well, I don't believe that. (laughs) Reddit's been going public for real since like, I don't know. (laughs) 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and Reddit was going to go public, right? So, yeah, yeah, not so much. But I mean, maybe we'll see. They have filed in the past and, you know, maybe we'll get there. But yeah, Reddit did bounce back. It's still an amazingly kind of like duct taped together service given how old it is. Like Reddit's down today, the day we're recording this. And I don't even get surprised by that. It's like when Twitter breaks for me. I'm Mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, that's what happens. So it feels very much like I'm driving around a car that is beloved, but it's on its absolute last legs and has been so for a very long time. And yet it still works. Yeah. Uh. And and it's not the only, only site that upset a lot of people. You know, Twitch ended its 70-30 subscription revenue split deal, which really upset a lot of creators because that, I mean, that's a good amount of money and they changed it so it was only eligible creators would get that 70-30 split. And so that upset a lot of people. I think they felt used and taken advantage of. And I don't blame them. 
Yeah. I mean, Twitch was not alone even there. I mean, if you think about what we've seen with YouTube, its creator economy, payments thereof, monetization, strikes, and how YouTube itself is handling ad blockers, there's a lot of kind of like turmoil, I would say, in and amongst the video and streaming parts of the creator economy. Just to kind of wrap this up, I mean, we have seen a couple of other interesting things. There was the Substack community round Mm -hmm. that happened earlier this year. We've also seen companies like Beehive grow in popularity quite strongly. And so there are areas where the creator economy is doing well. And there's places where it seems to be struggling both at the highest and kind of smaller levels. But I'll just say, you know, these tools that we talk about, the Twitches, the Reddits, the YouTubes, the Substacks and the other email providers, the blogging services, very much still part of the conversation. I think the only difference this year is that there's not optimism that anyone can go out there and make a million dollars online. It's more like, you know, you can go out there and make 5K. We still haven't solved the middle income creator Mm -hmm. economy issue, but perhaps that will never actually be fixed by technology products themselves. Yeah, that remains to be seen. All right. Enough about all that squishy human crap. Who wants to talk about our feelings? Ew, icky. Let's talk about AI instead. <laughs> AI, and <then> yeah. Turn... <laughs> Not human crap. (laughs) Yes, robot crap, to be very clear. AI and what I'm calling the return of key person syndrome. Now we can talk about it. Mm -hmm. OpenAI and Sam Altman, probably the story of the year, even though Silicon Valley Bank owned that title clearly up until I think the OpenAI fiasco came about. Right. We had a ton of coverage of it. If you want to listen back to that, please do. We also have Devin Coldaway joining us later on in the week to talk about the aftermath. But I want to bring it up in the context of key person syndrome, because it did seem like we saw a founder leader booted from a company and then everyone going into an uproar about this. It felt like technology was returning to this singular person Mm -hmm. kind of like focus in a way that it hasn't felt as much in the last couple of years, Marianne. So I just want to posit that as a hypothesis and get your reaction to it. I mean, it's an excellent point. I think It was definitely an illustration of key person syndrome when I think we were all shocked. We were all stunned when we we saw that he was, when Altman was out at OpenAI. Now, to be clear, he is not the sole founder of the company. He's a co-founder among several other people, including Elon Musk, right? I'd have to go back and double check. I know Musk put some money into it originally, but I forget. Well, and then also which bit of the non-profit entity or the later built for profit. So now I'm getting complex. I'm sorry. I, I digress. But my point was... Sam Altman is not the sole founder of OpenAI, but yet he has been the face of OpenAI, right? And when ChatGPT took off last year, he's been the face of it. Everyone has kind of associated OpenAI with Sam Altman. So when it came out that he was ousted or fired as CEO, I mean, everyone lost it, right? We were like, what? How could, how on earth could this happen? This wildly successful company that has really pretty much single-handedly taken the AI trend and had it explode, right? To where that's all everyone can talk about. And now you're saying he's out? Like what? What happened here, right? So, okay, this happened right before I was going on vacation for Thanksgiving break. Perfectly timed. Perfectly timing to some might say, I don't know. But so I was still kind of keeping up with it. It was just crazy every single day. There was something new and different happening. It was like everyone, you know, a board member wanted him out. Then that board member said, oops, what was I thinking? How could I make such a mistake? Let's bring him back. And then most of the company was going to quit and revolt if he didn't come back. If there is, like, this is the most prime example of key person syndrome I think I've seen in a long time. We've also seen a number of key people who have been not just the titular figurehead, but also the kind of the pulse and the soul of a company lose their status. Two names from the world of crypto that come to mind is uh, CZ over at Binance. 
that that came out of nowhere, but that's that. And then also, of course, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX. We had the major trial there earlier this year. Our own Jackie Melanick was all over that for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so we have seen some negative examples of key person syndrome, if you will, mm-hmm. the other side of that particular coin. True. And also, in some cases, the return of a founder to once again become that person. I'm thinking about Ryan Peterson and the Flexport CEO saga. Mm-hmm. So maybe in periods of more rapid change, we end up seeing individuals have more import than they do in periods of time in which we're seeing more small companies pursue verticalized software solutions. Like no one's ever going to be like, oh, that guy who built SaaS for um, the weed whacker business is like the figurehead or the person we think about for that. But when there's a lot of change, maybe single people do matter more. Yeah, I think also sometimes it just depends on the company and just how popular it is, how many people know about it. I mean, OpenAI was known globally, right? FTX, Binance were huge names in the crypto world. Flexport in its own world, also very, very well known. Huge. Yeah. So for Ryan Peterson, who left last year and he became a VC, (laughs) to come back, it was just, okay, wow. It just makes you think like sometimes, you know, there are cases for when people say, okay, just because people founded companies doesn't mean they should be their CEOs forever. True. But there are cases when sometimes those founders just need to stick around for a while. Well, it depends on who you actually uh, put into the seat after you. Right, exactly. I think quite often the thing not to do is to replace the visionary founder with the operationally minded Mm -hmm. MBA type. You know, Microsoft went from the Bill Gates era to the Steve Ballmer era to the Satya Nadella era. And I have written about how I think Ballmer is actually given a slightly short shrift in his tenure atop Microsoft. But you went from technologist to salesperson to technologist. And I think that when people outline their favorite parts of that company, it's the first and third versus the second. Right. And, you know... I think that Google is suffering from a little bit of this with Sundar, who I think mm-hmm. is more Balmer than Nadella, if you will. Mm-hmm. I'm stretching my analogies here very far, but roll with me, everybody. Yeah, but that's my take on that sort of return of key person syndrome, especially in the AI context. And Marianne, we are going to stop here and we are going to come back later in the week with a deep dive on crypto and a deep dive on AI with two of our colleagues to who we can go very, very much into the weeds there. But in the meantime, a drum roll sound effect, please, production crew. Thank you very much. All right, Marianne, hit us. Who is the winner of our 2023 in a headline tweet competition? Startup shutdowns and AI showdowns, the 2023 Chronicles. And the credit for that goes to Joshua at D-Z-I-A-B-I-A-K. Thank you for a very clever headline. That was pretty good. Actually, that person sent in quite a few that we liked quite a lot, and we had to pick amongst so many excellent entries. So thank you, Joshua. I'm going to grab two of my honorable mentions from folks that responded to my entreaty here. The first one is Nothing Else Matters, AI version by Sam Altman featuring everyone else. This is a mishmash of Metallica and Taylor Swift and AI all in one thing. I love it. It's from Danielle Stickler, who does PR over at Mission North. And then Alex from Mars Base, who I absolutely adore and is a heavy metal fan, said, quote, shit hit the funds, which I thought was also quite pithy and excellent. Yeah, and my honorable mention would be from Clint Chow, the year that AI made up just about everything. And then Nate Smoyer did get clever and ask ChatGBT the question, which came up with a very wordy and nonsensical answer that I won't even read out loud because... Wait, you can't you can't say it's nonsensical and wordy and then not read it. So come on. Okay, I'll just read the headline. 2023, a year of unprecedented transformations and challenges reshaping our world in unexpected ways. 
Yes, if it sounds like it came out of a lower tier think tank associated with the World Bank, ChatGPT wrote it. But anyways, thank you all for your entries. We had a great laugh. We really appreciate it. You guys are all very, very smart and funny, so you should come on the show. We'll see what we can do. Marianne, that's it. 2023 in the bag. I'm ready for a new year. Are you feeling good? Are you excited for another whole year of equity? Oh my gosh, yes. And I'm just ready for a new year in general. Like I hope it's a year of positive, positive energy, and I'm ready to kind of put 2023 behind us. So. <laughs> I can't wait for January 5th to crush your dreams and make us all look forward to 2025. <laughs> but no matter what happens, equity will be here. So don't forget, we are Equity Pod on X and Threads. We come out Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and we have some cool things planned for you for next year that I'm not allowed to talk about yet, but they're going to be fun. So we'll see you in the new year. Appreciate you all. Goodbye. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. 